Hello, and welcome back to Nurture Narratives, a platform for open and uplifting conversations about the societal narratives that shape how we parent. I'm your host, Jessica Hines-Cook. It's been a while since I've published an episode, and I'm so excited to be sharing this one with you today. A big thank you for continuing to listen to the podcast while I took a break from recording new episodes. In this episode, I'm talking to Ania Antijnanaro, a professional photographer based in Barbados. Ania is a mother to four children, and we discuss her journey as a mother and some of the challenges she has faced and lessons she's learned along the way. I want to offer a content warning for this episode as Ania openly shares her struggle with infertility and multiple miscarriages. I am so grateful that Ania opened up about this subject with me and is helping to remove some of the stigma that is unfortunately associated with this topic. Ania shared with me what it was like to be a single mom to her older girls and to now be raising her children with her husband, Mateo. We also discussed the aspects of Barbadian culture that Ania would like to pass on to her kids and those that need to change, especially when it comes to the education system in the island. We touched briefly on Ania's photography projects and the beautiful reason that she loves to capture the magic of her family's everyday routines. I found Ania's reflections on motherhood to be so honest and thoughtful, and I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Today I'm talking to Ania Emptich Lanaro, who is a portrait photographer based in Barbados, where she lives with her husband and four kids. Ania is an extremely talented photographer, and along with running a wedding and portrait photography business, she documents her family's everyday life in photographs. She is currently part of an ex- exhibition at the Florida Museum of Photographic Arts in Tampa called Picture Imperfect, celebrating documentary family photography. She also recently completed a project for the New York Times and Nike documenting road tennis in Barbados. And she is currently working on a project photographing young girls in sports, which explores the positive relationship between sports and issues faced by teenage girls. Ania is such a powerful visual storyteller whose photos speak to the beauty in our everyday routines. So I asked her to talk to me today about her family's story and her journey as a mother. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Um, can you tell me about your family? Sure. So I live in Barbados, like you said, with my four kids. Um, there's six, two girls, 16 and 15. And then my two little boys are two and nine months. And my husband, um, who's a Italian import <laughs> and and yeah we live on the south coast of Barbados it's, it's pretty nice here yeah it's really nice awesome um so before I talk to you a bit more about your family and your your motherhood journey I was wondering if you can tell me a bit more about the project that you're working on now for uh, Nike and the New York Times Right. So that we finished that project in September or October. And basically what Nike did was um, they explored sort of indigenous sports around the world. So they basically had um, somebody covering sports in in pretty much every country in the world. I mean, 190 something. And it was really cool. So we did road tennis here. And it was really nice to go into the community and get to learn about the history of 
of road tennis because honestly I never I never knew about it it was something that you see here on the roads and the guys and girls playing um, mainly guys but to learn about it and I was and I'm friends with the writer who did all the research and wrote the article and um, it was really interesting it was it was really it was really proud moment because you know it's something that as I said you see every day and you just sort of roll over but when you get into the meat of it and you get into the culture of road tennis and it's a whole new world it's a world within our world that I didn't know about right because it's it's indigenous to Barbados road yeah. tennis oh I didn't yeah. know that that's cool yeah I, I didn't know that either it's um it came about because you know traditionally black people weren't you know they weren't part of the elite tennis mm -hmm. and so you know we, they created their own and which is great which is fantastic it's it's pretty amazing okay cool so is that separate from the project that you're working on about uh teen girls in sport yeah that's completely separate so okay. that was yeah that was commissioned by the by nike and the new york times who were co um co-partners on that project and girls in sports is my own project Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, is that one like a personal one for you? It's personal. It is. It's um, I've I've always you know I was a teen girl myself. I went through the ups and downs of it, and um, and I all sports I was always there to sort of ground me as much as it could have because I was like a runaway horse. Um, mm -hmm. But I knew that, you know, having especially having girls, it was super important for them to play sports, and so they started with tennis and then went to volleyball and and then I just sort of decided this is what I wanted to document and show the positive impact that sports plays on young girls specifically. Yeah have you seen that impact in your own daughters? Oh absolutely um absolutely it's um especially looking when you talk to other girls and you know because part of the project is having having the girls write handwrite the, you know, what sports has done for them, but not necessarily what sports has done for them, how, how, what things are happening in the, in the world of teen girls, right? And has sports helped them deal with that? Has it, you know, shed, you know, helped them go into a different direction? You know, things to do with sex, things to do with relationships, things to do with um, body image, all of these things. And I mean, maybe my girls, are, I just got lucky in that they're so different from how I was. I was, I was just different as a, mm -hmm. as a teenager. And I can see for them discipline, you know, um, time management, it is, it's key. And for them, I can, I totally see it. I see what I see, I see the difference that sports makes for them. That's really cool. I'll be really interested to see, uh, see that project once it's complete. Yeah, I'm excited. It's, it's amazing. I'm sorry, there's like, I'm on a main road. And so every <laughs> now and then there'll be a truck passing by. No problem. <laughs> um, I'm interested in hearing about your kind of motherhood journey because there's such a, a large age gap between um, your daughters and, and your sons. Yeah. What was the difference in, um, in adding to your family this like second time around, I guess? Yeah, it was, um, I mean, I got married really young when I was 22 and, you know, I kind of just, I figured I was going to be a wife and a mom for the rest of my life. And as soon as we got married, um, literally three months later, we were like, we're going to have kids. And then when Ella was seven months, we we're like, let's have another one. And it was super easy, super fast. 
Um, but shortly after, um, when my daughter was 10 or 11 months, um, we were living in California and sort of my life just took a different direction. I was separated and then I got divorced and, um, and then I kind of just thought it was just going to be me and them for forever, just the three of us. And then I met Mateo and, um, and I never thought that I was going to have more kids, but, but he did, he wanted them. And so at 35, we decided that we were going to start having more kids. Um, and it was a little bit surreal, but it was different because I raised the first two on my own. And I okay. thought, okay, this is going to be, it's different. I have my buddy with me doing it with me this time around and it changed things. It was a completely different experience night and day. Completely. Yeah. yeah completely. What was it like having, having that extra support that maybe you were lacking before? Oh, it is. It's huge. Um, you know, it's on one hand, it's, it's hard to let go of, of control because having raised two kids on my own, I feel like I know what I'm doing. I, I, I've got it. Like I know what to do in these situations. I know how to, you know, deal with discipline. I know how to do that. So part of it is great in that I have, I have somebody, I have a, a springboard. I have somebody to talk to you about these things. I have, I, and I don't have the sort of the, what's the word I'm looking for? The antagonist relationship with another, with the other parent, like I did with mom with my ex-husband and it's a really amazing thing to have a cohesive group of people that are all on the same page as in the six of us well the two of them are too little but it, it it's different it really is nice to have that person there but I have to learn how to let go a little bit because I'm a very strong parent <laughs> and um and so I have to learn that you know they're his kids too. And I have to be able to let him parent. So it's, it's been, it's a learning experience as life is, you just learn. And I mean, it's great. I, I, I love it this time around. Whereas before it was, it was hard and it was strange and it was difficult, but you know, it's, it's, just, it's just two different worlds. Completely. It's night and day. That's great. Um, is it cool as well to see, because these are your husband's first uh first children is it cool to see him as well step into that role it is it really is because um Mateo is a very <laughs> is a very very childlike adult and I say it in a nice <laughs> way like he loves arcades <laughs> and I think I mean when we first met he said he didn't want to have kids and I think that's what drew me in in that I felt like I had been done with the child rearing and it was you know he didn't want kids in the beginning and it wasn't something that he was, you know, waiting for and, you know, the clock was ticking. Um, so it is, and it's nice to see him, you, you know, love evolves, you get to know people every day differently and you see something and somebody that makes you love them a little more. Um, and it awes you and it freaks you out a little bit. And it's just, it, it's an evolution of, of learning another person, which is so interesting. It really is. Yeah. That's really cool. And I, I identify definitely with letting go of control. And I can imagine how hard that would be if you've done it already on your own before, because I've, I've never yeah. done that. But I still feel like sometimes <laughs> like she was so attached to me from the start. And I was like the primary caregiver, I would say my husband was working, I was at home. Yeah. It's hard to not like gatekeep everything that your partner is doing and be like, no, she likes it this way. Don't do that. Do That's that. It. That's it. It's relinquishing a little, relinquishing, sorry, a little bit of that control to, I mean, 
at the end of the day, you are buddies, you are partners, you are parents. Um, and naturally, one spends more time with them, with the children. And so you almost feel like you know the child a little better. You know how to do it better. Um, we just got to give it up a little bit. Just just a hair. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling that like relinquishing control is probably something that keeps coming up as you are a parent and as your kids get older. That's it. It is. It, um, it, and it sort of, it's like a, it's like a rope and, you know, the rope is really long and then soon enough that control just, it, it comes to an end and you have to let go. Like there's, you don't have an option. Like my oldest daughter, Ella, she's off to university next year and I can't, it doesn't, it doesn't compute in my head that I'm not going to know where she is every second of the day. And that's not control. It's yeah. that I, it's like I put my, I'm putting my heart out into like the freeway mm. and I'm really hoping that everybody else loves my heart as much as I do and will try to avoid it, but I can't, Aww. I can't. <laughs> that's so sweet and heart kind of touching. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's hard, but you got to let go of it. Like as a parent, you just, you, you know, you drop your two-year-old off at, at nursery, you don't have any control over what's going to happen. Um, and then at 17, 18, you let them go out into the world and you just hope you did a good job. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've written a bit about your struggles um, with infertility. Is, would you, um, I was wondering if you could share a bit of that story today as well, because I think it would really help. I know people who have gone through it and I know a lot of people do. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that. Absolutely. So like, well, like what, like I said earlier, I, my first, um, I got pregnant when I was 22 and 23 with my kids and that was easy. That was like two weeks later, those lines were there. And then when we decided to have kids, I was 35. Um, and I didn't know anything about miscarriages or infertility or trying, like trying for me was, is not, was not a concept. And so um, we had decided to start in September, 2016. Um, and after a couple of months, like one, two months, I was like, this is strange. But um, by November, again, not, not, not long in, in, especially as a 35 year old, but two months later I did get pregnant. And, um, and at around 10, 11 weeks, I lost the baby. And, um, and it was, it was devastating, but more so I think it was, I mean, of course it was devastating and all that stuff, but I think it was also a little bit of a blow to my ego. Like mm. what? <laughs> I yeah. just scared you thinking what? Um, but after that, um, you know, you sort of, you know, you start reading up about it, but then the miscarriages kept happening um, mm. until about maybe April or May of 2017. I had, um, I then contacted the fertility clinic and I said, well, listen, this is the situation. I've lost about four kids now, well, four mm. babies or however, you know, however long, however far along it was. And, um, and she said, well, there's something going on if you're able to get pregnant, but they're just not staying. So I came in and, you know, they did the blood tests and, and, and after that, it was still it was still difficult, even though I was taking Clexane and steroids. So eventually we conceived Otis and it stuck in January of 2018. So it was a good year and a half. And, um, and so the thing that I think 
stuck to me the most was the help and that a lot of women don't get help. Mm. They think there's something wrong with them or um, it wasn't meant to be. And I understand that completely, but and in no way was my situation an easy fix. And in no way was my situation as, as severe as it could get. I mean, I do know women who have lost babies at 24, 25, 26 weeks, and that's devastating to have to labor a child that they know is not going to be with them. Um, but it's also, and you know, it's also equally as, um, as heart-wrenching in some way and as frustrating to consistently be getting pregnant for a year and a half and consistently just waiting to go to the bathroom, knowing that mm. probably not going to continue. And that's how I lived for a year and a half. And it was horrible. Um, but I think with, I think another big thing, and I'm not even going to lie, it's, I think the culture that we're living in and that we're not taught to ask for help at all. We're taught to keep our mouth shut. Um, and along with that, there's a part of shame involved. Um, and that might not be a cultural thing, more so it's a, it's a universal woman thing. I'm not sure, but we don't talk about it. I had never known anybody with the, who, had an, who had even one miscarriage. And the way I saw it, as I said it very immaturely so, was that there was something wrong with these women. I completely distanced myself from women who had miscarriages. They were of a different kind almost. Yeah. And it's, it's shameful to say that, um, but that's how I, that's the world in which I was living. And it's cut the complete opposite. And so even though I, I do know women who have had miscarriages, who have gone through the same journey as me, maybe with the blood clotting issue or a super immune system that was, and that was, well, eventually that's what, what it was on my end. It was blood clotting and the super immune system. So I would have to do daily um, clexane injections to uh, the blood thinners and then steroids to weaken the system so that it wouldn't kill off anything foreign necessarily. And then of course, as everybody did with the baby aspirin. But even now having spoken to people and spoken out about it and letting people know it's okay, it happens. There are people who will say, just don't tell anybody that I had a miscarriage. And it's not to say that I'm gonna be like, guess what guys, this person had a miscarriage. But it's this, it's the, it's the, I'm gonna tell you because you said it, but I just still don't want anybody else to know. Like, and I'm not saying that everybody's story had has to be public but if we normalize it a little more people will be okay to ask for help like I can't tell you just the number of women who have spoken to me and I'm like get help like I can give you the number to the clinic I can give you the number to you know anybody that you need just you have to start to take charge like we're not in the 40s anymore where a doctor's you know a doctor's word is bond we have to take we really have to take our own health into our own hands. Like after the first miscarriage, my, pedi my pediatrician, my OBGYN didn't suggest fertility um, help. After the second or third, he didn't either. I mean, especially knowing, and, he, and you know, at the time he was like, well, you know, you're a little older, just wait. But it was on me and I just did not want to live my life hoping for something. Um, and disappointed every month or every other month. It's, it, it's hard, but I think we just have to, I mean, it's, it's gonna sound cliche, but you gotta break the chain of silence. Like it has to be, it has to be spoken about. And, and, um, and we sort of have to build a, um, 
almost like a trampoline springboard that people can come and bounce off things and feelings and emotions and ups and downs because we just don't have that. And I, I, I'm hesitant to say that that's a Caribbean or Barbados thing because I think that is around the world. I think you're right. The fact that I find it interesting that people would share your story with you and tell like because you had gone through the same thing and say like I'm not going to share with anybody else it definitely highlights the fact that there's definitely still stigma around it which is like a lot of things that we attach stigma to it's so bizarre that we would stigmatize something that a woman has no control over and needs exactly. to get help and has needs should have like more help and support than ever but they exactly. feel like they have to be silent exactly and that's the hurtful part the um the need the feeling of I can't tell anybody because it's it's this I mean it's it's not it's not you know unique to you know miscarriage it's it's a situation of the world of problems if you don't say anything nothing's going to get done if there's any social injustice and I'm not likening miscarriage to an injustice but it's something that's broken in the system or it's something that's broken in in somebody as an emotion mm -hmm. you have to talk about it um, if not you're suffering in silence and there's nothing worse than you know, repeatedly losing your hope. And because no matter what anybody says, and people will say things like, oh, you know, you were only, but you were only eight weeks or you were only nine weeks. But the truth of the matter is, yes, I understand that women are finding out that they're pregnant a lot earlier than they were even 10 years ago. But the moment that you do find out, the moment that you have two lines, it is not two lines. It is a person in your head. It is it is graduation. It is that person's marriage. It is that person's mm -hmm. heart and soul that's created. It's that person's idea that that person has now, the mom has now created a person in her head. And you can't take that away. Like that is instantaneous love. And um, once it's gone, it's a heartbreak. It's complete heartbreak for regardless of how far along you were. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I totally feel like I felt like that when I was pregnant, that I was already a mother. Like I would, I remember my first like Mother's Day being pregnant and everyone being like, well, you can celebrate next year. I'm like, no, like I'm a mother. Like this child is a child. And <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm, I'm a to be mother. I'm going to be a mother. Like I am a mother. That's how I felt. I am a mother. I do things to protect this baby. I'm not reckless. Yeah. I'm not drinking. I'm not doing anything crazy. My job is to protect this human. I'm their mom. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, I know it's, it's that it's, it's, it's so many layers of, um, of what society puts on you that, you know, that makes this difficult for a lot of women to go through and to speak up about it. Yeah. Did, did you, were you able to find support while you were going through this? Were there people that you could talk to? Sure. My family is like my absolute rock. Um, they were amazing. Of course, the, the people at the fertility clinic, Barbados Fertility Clinic, they were awesome. Like literally hand-holding through everything, making sure you're okay. Um, if something happens, like I did, I did have another miscarriage after I had Otis. And, um, you know, again, it was the literally every, they were like, you know what? Come back every other day. We're gonna make sure their numbers are rising. We're gonna do an ultrasound. I mean, eventually the, that didn't, make it but I mean it's just the you need that and if it and the thing is is that 
you can choose who you want, but you don't need to have a whole host of support around you. You just need a good one person, two people to let you know that it's okay and you're fine and you're yeah. good. That's yeah, it. that's awesome. Thank you so yeah. much for sharing that part of your journey. Yeah. I know that's really personal and I think that's really cool that you shared that with me today and with everybody who's listening. <laughs> you're so welcome. <laughs> It's part of it's just part of it's part of life, and um, and if you can talk about it and let people know that like it's not your fault, you know, talk to somebody even if it's a stranger. There's no judgment. I'm in no judgment zone. You can come to me. There's so many other people you can talk to, um, but sometimes it's just why is this happening that they're asking like why me? And then you just you just want somebody to hear you or to just be silent with you sometimes, and that's all you need. I know you're like, yeah, non-judgmental support for everything that you're going through is such a, yeah. I mean, and, and, and in all facets of when you're struggling in parenthood or trying to become a parent, sure. so important. So important. Oh my goodness. It's so important because everybody has their own way of doing things and there's no, I certainly didn't get a handbook. It's not like I'm, it's not like I've left the handbook at home and I'm figuring this out on my own, but there are no answers and we just, we have to figure it out. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what it, what it's like for you. Um, do you think there's a difference in the way that you're raising your younger kids? Like, have you changed your parenting style over the years? Such a good question. <laughs> it's absolutely yes. Um, I feel like with everything you get wiser when you're older, you get calmer, you get more patient and you know, with the two little girls, I mean, we kind of bounced around. We lived in California for a while after we came back. And then we went back to California um, and then we moved to Italy and it was a lot of pressure on me as a single mom. So I, I can tell you, I wasn't perfect. I mean, none of us are, but I remember times and I just lost my patience dealing with two babies under two um, alone in California by myself with no help um, or in Italy when I had to go to work and the babysitter called to say she wasn't coming and it's just it's like what do I do I mean now I can say okay Mateo you're gonna have to do this or this is how we're gonna have to work it out so there's there was a lot of a lot of stress and then I was literally going through the divorce um, when they were young and so it, it was hard. It was definitely hard. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you sort of try and keep that away from them. And the same thing kind of goes now with the little boys. You try and, I said you try and protect them from the, the ills of life. But the main thing is my patience. I, I'm so much more patient with Otis and Atlas. Um, I mean, Atlas is a baby, so like that comes with the territory. But as a two-year-old, spilling things, knocking down a glass, and my patience with him is just so much better. <laughs> but I know that's because I'm an older mom. Um, I noticed a lot of your pictures are um, like your older girls with your um, your younger boys. What has it been like to see them become big sisters? Yeah. That's to me has been. I think the best thing that I have been able and the luckiest thing for a woman to see um, these two children that you've raised into these young adults and 
to see them taking care of other people. Yes, they're their brothers, but you know, it could have gone the other way where they could just have not given two hoots about them. But to take these two boys in as their brothers, I mean, even though they're half brothers, it, that's not even a thing um, in our house. And they have just, they're like their second and third moms. Um, I feel like had I questioned my parenting with the two girls, I just completely realized that I did a good job with them and how they are with Otis and Atlas. Um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't have dreamed of this. I couldn't have hoped for anything more. The patience that I didn't have with them, it's remarkable that as teenage girls, they exhibit that with Otis and Atlas with two babies. It's, it's remarkable to see, it's, an, it's awe inspiring because these are teenagers that patience isn't required for them. Um, it's actually non-existent in most kids. But for them, they have this level of maturity that of course I never had and I'm still kind of, I'm still trying to get. <laughs> But it's been the most, it's been the most wonderful thing to see. And it makes my life easy. It really does. That's really yeah. beautiful. I, I really love yeah. your, your photo style where you just take such like mundane, ordinary moments and make them so beautiful. Um, I have a photo like that. I, I love that. Like I personally love also capturing like just my, on my cap, my phone, my, these oh. little moments. Like I have a photo on my podcast yeah. page on like Christmas day where like Audrey had spilt milk everywhere and the dog is licking it up. And it was just like such the, I don't know, to me, like I love those little moments. <laughs> and it's real. Yeah. I think those are like the best memories. Um, why do yeah. you like capturing photos like this? Like I've, I don't see a lot of kind of staged uh, family portraits. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think it's, the documentary photographer in me. Um, I, I think there's a moment for post photos and I do love them. Um, but for me, I love taking the images that they don't really know that I'm taking. And it's not that, um, it's not that I'm trying to be sneaky about it. It's just, I have my <laughs> camera on me all the time and, you know, I see something and I'm snapping and they, I think they've become so desensitized um, they, they just don't even care anymore. They don't, they don't go and get dressed up or, or change their side if they see the camera come out. They just do what they have to do. And I know it's going to, I mean, it sounds like such a Debbie Downer and it sounds completely morbid, but I take them because one day I'm not going to be here and they're going to have a library of images and they're going to be able to see how I love them. And mm. that's, for me, that's huge. I, I want them to see that I saw the beauty of them lying down in bed in their in their quote-unquote worst and yeah. I want them to know that um, and they're going to forget it they're going to go off and have their own life and um, in 20-30 years when they see these images again and that's a big thing I make sure I print as much as I can um, because whatever we take on our phones or you know you know if I whatever it is we can print them we can print them, but if we leave them on the computer, they're going to die. Um, they're just going to go. And so I make sure I keep them. And I just, and this is kind of like advice for everybody. It doesn't have to be like, you have to make a grand moment of your photos and get them framed and up on the wall, because that just annoys people sometimes. It's just annoying. I just take all of my pictures and I just print them 
off in five by sevens. I put like just a little white border over them and I just chuck them in a chest and they're just there. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of, and they're, I don't need to do anything special with them, but I need them to have it at some point. And they're not going to have what's on my phone. They're not going to have what's on a USB stick. They're going to have the prints. And so I know for me, I don't, I sometimes I, I hardly even look at the, the, the work that I do um, documenting them, but I just print, put in the, put in this, um, the chest and that's it. Um, sometimes they take it out and look at them. Most oftentimes they don't, but one day when I'm not around, they're going to have that chest of prints and they're going to see what I saw in them. Yeah, I was going to say that is so powerful that they're going to see themselves like through your eyes. Um, yeah, I think it. that's, that's really amazing. Yeah, um, that's, that's my why. <laughs> huh. Um, so we were both raised in Barbados. Um, and I'm always curious when I talk to other Barbadians or Caribbean people, if there are aspects yeah. of our culture that they want to pass on to their kids, or maybe there's aspects that they want to leave behind and not impart on yeah. their children. Yeah, um, totally. I, um, yes, I, so, you know, I, I grew up half, half of my life was in Windsor, Ontario. The other half was here, but okay. at the heart of it all, I had Caribbean parents through and through. My dad's from Barbados. My mom is from Dominica and they raised us that way. Mm -hmm. um, very strict um, values, um, education, education, education. You know, I think if it's one thing that I would really love to pass on at least, and again, I don't know if it's a Caribbean thing or if it's just how I was raised. It's the sense of family. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they say blood is thicker than water. We know otherwise. We know that some people aren't fortunate enough to have family values and stuff. But for us, and I think it's very strong throughout the Caribbean, I don't hear of many um, situations where kids don't speak to their parents. Like how I do a lot of <laughs> some, a lot of people that I've, you know, grown up with like they don't have relationships with their families. And I don't understand, I can't understand that. I don't see that happening a lot in the Caribbean. Mm. But one thing that I have to say that I definitely want to lose is this idea of only speak when spoken to and respect authority. That is the one thing that breaks our children um, completely. It completely breaks it. And it's sad because it, takes away confidence and when you take that confidence away from a kid you you just you don't let them dream anymore and I think that's the big thing you're not allowed to you're not allowed to say what's on your mind you're not allowed to talk back and talking back is just sometimes it's just talking but it's yeah. as talking back and I think um I think I think that's a very strong aspect of the Caribbean culture that I would just mix in in a heartbeat, um, really, really, really get rid of it. And you'll see that in the schools a lot. Like you can't, there's no, at least how the schools that the schools that I went to, and even though it was, you know, you talk about progressive, it's not really progressive. Like there's this idea, there's no idea of daring to dream and daring, like trying to be great. Like how can you be great? Like how can you surpass what your parents did? And I don't know how you can do that when the books that you're learning from are the same books that your mom learned from. Like, so 
they need, I think the problem is that they need to let children, um, they need to let their minds go beyond what's in front of them and respect that and love that. And I think once they do that, things could change in that you're not expected to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. There's so much more beyond that. That's not only, that's not only, um, it's not only accessible, but it's respected. Um, the arts, not in, the arts are not respected in Barbados at all. Um, it's not like it's not something that you would ever aspire to do or to be an artist in any way, shape, or form. Or yeah, there's so many. Oh my gosh! I now that I'm thinking about it, there's more to this. <laughs> there is more. Like the other thing is, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the Caribbean, they don't teach you about money. They don't teach you about how to save. They don't teach you about how to earn, um, how to invest. And there's so, and, and that really stifles people. It really does. And the lack of earning a dollar when you're young. I mean, growing up in Canada, we were able to work at 14. Like we could work at the movie theaters. We could have paper routes. We could, you know, so many things we could do at 14. We, I mean, we were, you know, we were raking leaves of our neighbors and getting paid. I don't see that happening here. The, you got to get a job. You've got to get a job. And that's the other thing that, that, needs, to, that needs to be incorporated into, um, I think, Caribbean culture. Yeah, I'm totally on board with you. When it comes to the education system, I remember I came to Canada when I was 16 and I went to high school yeah. and I was just like totally shocked that teachers asked us for our opinion on things and like yeah, there was yeah. large portions of our class time were people like raising their I mean, like I, this is my this is my thoughts on like what's going on currently and I was like what like all I was like why do they care about what we think that was my because nobody had ever asked us that it was just like memorize this periodic well, that's table. it that's it this is what you have to do and there's no question you can't ask why you can't say, well, I don't understand. I had a situation with my daughter where she was having issues in math. And I asked her, I asked the teacher, I said, well, can you teach her? And is there a different way to, is there a different way to do this? She goes, no. I said, so can you not explain it to her in a different way? She goes, no, that's the only way. I said, well, she's gonna have to go to lessons then, which is another foreign concept, me growing up in oh my gosh, never yeah. had extra lessons. I spent so much time in extra lessons and I, you know, I told, I've been, sometimes I'll talk to my husband and I'll be like, can you imagine like what I could have been doing if I, like I spent all evening in lessons because I struggled in math, chemistry, biology. So like I was in school all day and then I drove to another school and did extra lessons for like two hours. Like I could have been figuring out, like playing a sport or figuring out, you know, my passion I, exactly. I really think the education system really leaves a lot of people behind there. Like if oh. you if you struggle, oh it's like, well, too bad for you, you know? And it only caters to like the elite education. Yeah. That was it for me. I For my CACs, I got that three. I did, I got a one in English, English and math, and that was it. And my dad was like, yeah, we know what Barbados isn't for you. You're going to go back up to Toronto. So, I mean, I went and of course I finished high school there and, you know, I did pretty well in university and because the options were there because I knew that I didn't want to fit in. I couldn't do sciences. 
I didn't understand it. And I didn't like history or accounts or any, or those sort of standard things. And so, but what am I going to do? Like, so I kind of knew that I wasn't going to finish high school here, but, um, but for those who don't have that option, like I had the option to go to, back to boarding school. So many people don't have that. What are they supposed to do if they don't fit in the box? And, and it's, it's incredible to me that as a teacher, and I'm not here to cry down the system necessarily, but just sort of try to pick holes in it. It's incredible that as in, a, in, a, in an environment that you're sending your children to learn, it is a given that you pay somebody else to teach your children. It's given because mm-hmm. you don't want your child to fall behind. You're in the system. You have to play by the rules. So it's not to say that I can be like, eh, well, you're just going to, you know, live on the beach and just not go to lesson. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. Got to do it. Right. And um, that's the big thing. As you said, like, imagine what else they could be doing. The kids don't have social lives like how I had. Like, <laughs> like I was, I was, a Friday happened and I was off. I was taking myself on a bus and I was getting down to Eaton Center and I was hanging out and I was walking around and I was just having fun with my friends. There's nothing like that here for them because they have to work. I know. And then it starts so young too, because they have the 11 plus. And I remember like the years leading up to the 11 plus all of, and for those who, who aren't from Barbados or the Caribbean, the 11 plus is an exam we all take when we're 11 to determine what high school we go to. And then, so you can see how the high schools are then based on like all the quote unquote, all the people who did really well go to like two or three of the top schools. The people who did badly go to the schools that like no one wants to go to as much. And and those parents need to afford to pay for them to go to lessons to get into those top schools. It just sort of keeps this cycle going. Um, It's very bizarre when you come to think of it. Um, And of course you have the elitist everywhere, you know what I mean? Like I know, and you know, I went to boarding school and at the end of the year, they'd say, so she needs like one or two more marks, who's gonna give it to her so that they get into the school that they wanted to get to. And it happens, um, but it's just when that system starts from so young and you're, there's so much pressure involved in, you know, where am I gonna go? Where am I gonna go? These are 10 year olds, 11 year olds. And that's the age I came in. I came in on common entrance year and I didn't understand. I didn't have the mental capacity to be like, there's pressure. So I just had fun when I moved here. And so I didn't get into the top school. I didn't, you know, it and it wasn't even a top bottom thing for me. I was like, well, okay, that's where I'll just go. But yeah. um, the pressure is, it's real and it's unnecessary. It's just, it's just bizarre. Yeah, I just feel like kids should, be playing and having fun and figuring yeah. out what they want to do and exactly yeah. exactly and missing a little bit there it is it's missing which, a lot which people are probably surprised to hear because I think people have this idea that if you live in the Caribbean like you said you're just gonna go hang out on the beach and life yeah. is easy and yeah. we know it's not <laughs> <laughs> oh my god we know it's not and the funny thing is that there's there is sort of you know, you'll, some parents are going to be like, oh, no, you're not going to the beach. Who are you, who are you down there at the beach with? <laughs> like, I just kind of want to swim. <laughs> so they true. have this beach culture as well that you think is not, is not there, but it, it is. It's a strange, it's a strange little place, but, um, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's a beautiful place. Definitely. Definitely. Um, 
If you could change one popular narrative about modern modern motherhood or parenthood, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. If I could change it. Oh wow. You know, I would well, motherhood and parenthood. There's certain things that I having gone through both things having a single mom sort of life to having a double parent life. I think, and as you and I discussed already, this feeling that it's it's the mom, right? Like we are the ones who decide and it, it, I don't, like it doesn't matter what anybody says, it's the fact that it is really all on us. Um, and I think that regardless of whether you're doing it on your own or with somebody, you know, the world looks at you as if it's, it, the world is, it's on your shoulder. And you know what, at the end of the day, it is, um, I don't know if you saw this interview by, it was Ruth, um, Ginsburg. And she said that, you know, she, you know, she Supreme Court judge, and one day somebody called her from her son's school to say, you've got to come pick him up. Um, for whatever reason, she's like, you need to call the father, I'm at work. And the person on the other line said, I don't want to bother him. He's, he's at work. And she's like, but it's okay. I want to bother him. Yeah, <laughs> but it's okay to call me. And she didn't go. She left the child right there. And she said, I have, I have to work. So to me, the fact that we know that it's all on us, the world, the narrative is, yes, it is on us. And I think that's something that we need to expect, accept. But because it's on us, make it easier, make it easier for us. So if you see that, you know, the child that a two parent is in a two parent home, why is it us that you're calling first? Just make it easy on us and call the dad or call the partner, it doesn't matter. You know, I think the problem, the problem is that we have also as women accepted that role and we've gone with the tides. And I think it's on us to sort of change that as, as the late great Ruth did, call, the, call my partner, call his father, I'm busy. And I think the more we stand up like that and instead of accepting the role as yes, it is on us, even though we know at some point it is, because we take on this, yes, it's on us, but when we really need it to not be on us, we expect that everybody else is gonna understand. But we need to change it ourselves. We need to be the ones to say, you take the lead on this one, you know? You take him or her to school, or you know what? If something happens, you can call my partner. You can let him or her deal with that. I'm busy. So I think we need to, as much as we want the world to make a change, make a change, we need to do that ourselves. And that comes from owning ourselves as pers as people, you know, being okay to say, I'm going to spend a week by myself, or I'm going for dinner by myself. Um, I think we just need to stop putting pressure on ourselves and then the world will back off big time. Yeah, I, I agree with you. We're definitely seen as the, the default parent. Okay. Um, in everybody's eyes. And I think also we perpetuate that ourselves. And yes. I see mothers complaining and like making jokes about the one I always, I always see around Christmas. Everyone's just like, they talk about how mothers made the whole Christmas come together. And like, while the dad was doing nothing. And it's like, can you just stop making jokes about it though? Like that's it. Exactly. Cause it just perpetuates it and it makes it yeah. normal. It makes it normal. Well, this is, that's exactly it. And so yeah. we complain about 
it, but we are, we are the driving wheel. We are the driving force behind it. We are just like, you don't, just like if we go back to miscarriages, we don't hear men talking about it or they, it's not them. It's not them that's saying you had a miscarriage. Something's wrong with you. It's not them. It's us. It's women. It's women that make other women feel not so amazing. And so for something like this, change the narrative, be okay. Like there are some women who don't spend anything on themselves. And I'm not bringing this down to like a monetary thing, but they really will not spend anything on themselves. They will let themselves go in order to put everything into their kids, which is, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But you are a person. And I think what a lot of women realize is that when you start to take care of yourself, you can be the best mom ever. And if that means, and I think for me, this is the key. If that means spending time away from your children, that's what's going to do. That's what it's going to do for you. It's going to give yourself perspective and time to sort of just gather your thoughts and be, be yourself again. Because if you lose yourself, how can you, how can you stand up and be somebody's parent? If you don't even know who you are, I think it's, I think it's important. Yeah. I think that's really great advice. I think that's really like a really powerful statement for us to end on. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for talking to me. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you more. Like I Thanks. said, when I like following your photography, I was like, I know that you have like a powerful story to share. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Hope it resonates with someone, anyone. But yes, you know, it will. I know. It's just about being an open book and, and knowing that you know there are people out there who are going through what you're going through, whatever it is. You're not alone. You're not alone. Definitely not. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jess. It was awesome. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Nurture Narratives. Please subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Follow at nurture.narratives on Instagram for show updates and to let me know what you thought. Thanks for joining the conversation.